Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today, we speak with John Albert, retired lawyer, business person, and legal futurist. Like many of our guests, John's career path has taken some fascinating turns. He started at Bryan Cave when he was given the opportunity to buy a company, which ultimately became Albert Leland Inc., a database and software publisher in the transportation sector. John would later return to Bryan Cave as strategic innovation partner, one of the first in the business, applying his business skills and experience to find innovative ways for the firm to deliver legal services to new technology. Over time, he developed what we might now consider one of the first captive ALSPs. Additionally, John was a futurist for the International Legal Technology Association, where he served as a consultant on different programs and helped the organization focus on business strategies. Today, John dedicates himself to conservation in Florida, particularly the Apalachicola River, which has been called America's most endangered wild river. In our conversation, John tells us about his experience innovating Brian Cave, the ways he convinced lawyers to adopt technology, the advice he would give to legal professionals on tech and innovation, and his recent conservation efforts. Hope you enjoy the listen. John, thank you very much for making the time to chat with us on the podcast. Hey, Stephen. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate it. You've had quite the career in the use of technology and innovation in law firms, and let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. I- I'm curious, you were the strategic innovation partner for Brian Cave for 15 years. It covered a really interesting period of time in the industry from sort of 99 to 2015. Innovation wasn't even a word that was used in the legal industry in 99. And I I know because I was there with you at the time. What was it about your background, your career up to that point that led you to take on this challenge at Brian Cave? Inadvertence in part, I had just sold the business. You know, I joined Brian Cave as an associate after a clerkship, and I became a partner. And one of my clients presented me with an opportunity to buy them a a company in the transportation sector. And we did buy it and ran it for 10 years and bought some other companies and mushed them together and and sold it. Um, That closed in early 99, I think. And I was looking around for something to do, and it, it seemed like not an opportune time to do it. So some friends at Brian Cave, the, the chairman, among others, asked me to come back and address some problems that Brian Cave were having. So I, I did not come in to be an innovation partner or anything. It was just going to help them address problems. But, you know, in working on that, I began to play around with some other things like providing advice to clients in unusual ways using expert systems and began to put together a team to do that. And I found that fascinating. and. I just kept doing it, and it got more and more fascinating. And uh, the firm gave me a great deal of latitude to pursue hopefully profitable things, very often profitable enterprises. But I found the whole time there very fascinating. And so I stayed. This is an unusual, particularly early on in in the tenure. By the time you got to 2015, a lot of firms were doing what they called innovation, but you were at the vanguard of it. Were you intentionally trying to sort of change the way services are delivered? Or was it just they were giving you latitude to do some cool stuff with technology and why not? 
I, th- I think initially they thought, you know, we need to get on top of technology, and that was the, the original undertaking. But Brian Cave, through that period, had some visionary leadership. When I was a young lawyer, Bill Van Cleve, just extraordinarily visionary. And then early in my re-tenure at Brian Cave, Walter Metcalf, and he immediately saw the the potential of rejiggering how we do practice, how we deliver advice, and all of that. But that, that's how that came to be. So we gradu- gradually migrated our goals to thinking of new ways to deliver practice. I, I think we understood then that the traditional welfare model was going to be challenged. That was part of the visionary leadership that we had at that time. So this was a way of getting ready for that. How did you deal with one of the challenges, I think, particularly during that time period, was adoption by lawyers of new ways of thinking, of new ways of doing things. Visionary leadership is certainly a critical component, but I can't imagine the rank-and-file partners of Brian Cave were a lot different than the rank-and-file partners of most of our uh, our law firms at the time. How did you deal with the challenge of getting people to embrace different technologies, different ways of doing things during your tenure? Well, I pretty quickly found out that you can't just say to them, this is a cool technology that will change your life because nobody's going to do anything. I, you know, something under 10% of our lawyers would entertain something like that. At the same time, I was exploring, you know, the, the early things we did were with partnership teams, islands, as I call them, that really embraced the opportunity to, to change. Our first expert system was done working with a lawyer who eventually became chairman of the firm. So that kind of visionary leadership was possible in that team. But as to the rest of the firm, at the same time I was working on that, we were beginning to try and figure out how to educate lawyers about the business of law. And I quickly discovered that most lawyers don't understand how firms make money. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. I changed during the course of my business background. I forgot that. No, I forgot that 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 was true. (laughs) They came back in and it dawned on me that we have to fix this before we do any innovation because, you know, repricing is part and parcel of innovation. And you really have to understand what you're doing when when you do that. Restaffing, all of that. So we began to build tools to help lawyers see the state of their business. Initially, relatively straightforward things. And there was nothing on the market to help do that. Nothing. So... I slowly built that capability over the years, and we wound up developing a very robust system that opened up uh, practice economics for our lawyers. And we found different ways to to speak to those lawyers. Some lawyers can read a spreadsheet and find some need graphics of some type to help them understand what's going on. Some need stories and, and to be put into that story some ways. And we developed approaches to all of that, including software that automatically wrote the story of a particular year's business. And that got very widespread adoption. And from that platform, we could begin to show lawyers why it was important to change how we delivered services or change how we priced them, begin to assume some risk. And that's how we got started with that. You know, after my lesson, I I never did firm-wide stuff, though. It was always pretty discreet. And some of it was very widely embraced. The, The financial suite that we developed was very widely embraced and arguably was a lifesaver when the Great Recession came around. But lots of the things that we were famous for were done discreetly for less than the whole partnership, less than the whole firm. It is interesting how if you can find groups of people that embrace 
a technology or a change mechanism and can show some success, how that can impact other lawyers within the firm, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but tell that to people who come from a technology background and disagree with you. They'll want to push technologies out the way it happens in corporations, which is to roll it geographically or you know, structurally in some way and basically to make everybody do it. And that just doesn't work in a law firm. It's, it's structured differently than that. Particularly if you're trying to get people to change their behaviors and the way they interact with technology. It's one thing if you're changing your word processing platform and everybody's going, I grew up in WordPerfect and moved to Word. That's how old I am. Well, me too. That you can push out. But the, the things you're talking about, you can't just push out. That's right. Because you're impacting how people practice law. And that's very deeply ingrained. And there's a set of interests for each practice team, each partner, each group. And it, it doesn't, those interests don't reside at the practice group level. They don't reside at the office level. They're more personal than that. And that's what you have to address. I know you know where I'm going, but I formulated a way of thinking about this in order to explain to technologists how law firms are different. So people coming into law think of it as a hierarchical organization, you know, a big pyramid with lots of authority at the top and the ability from the top to push things downward. But it doesn't work like that. I, a, a better no, it analogy, doesn't. <laughs> a better analogy is law firms are archipelago nations. They're a series of island queendoms and kingdoms that stretch out over the horizon and, and pretty far beyond the ability of the firm to manage that. And, and firm top-level firm managers are not really the same as corporate managers. They're more like super peers or you know, wise counselors. So that's a very different thing. And, and what I found you had to do was go from island to island and choose your islands carefully and then address the interests that reside on that island. You know, interests in relationships with clients, in how clients are billed and how they're served, how lawyers are compensated, all of that. And working discreetly like that, you, you can address those things and not have to make sweeping changes to the firm. And that proved to be a good way to propagate technology. And I had to be content with the notion that some islands are never going to be converted. It's like a, it's like warfare in the Pacific. You know, some islands get skipped, but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, I think that's right. What, what type of team did you ultimately build, John? Boy, very diverse. You know, when I left, we even had at least one actuary on the team to help do probabilistic analysis. We were actively, when I left, actively consulting with clients. And that business grew after after I left. So we had to staff for that. So, you know, initially I started out with technologists, people who could build software, who could help deliver it. But as we dealt with the business of law, we expanded that set to initially what people call knowledge managers. But we went beyond that pretty quickly to people who could deal with the business of law. So people with some exposure to accounting, MBAs people who had come from business, an actuary. And we stole lawyers from the firm to do that too. We recruited from a lot from within the firm. And one of the businesses that we built up inside my areas of practice was a, an inside outsourcer, a group of people aimed at uh, reducing costs for e-discovery, for e-document due diligence and so forth. And it became quite a large group with lots of skill sets in there. And we recruited pretty heavily from that for our, our other activities. 
So I had quite a mix. Yeah, you had one of the first, now it would be referred to as a captive ALSP. Was that just born out of sort of the recognition that you had to find a cheaper and better way to deliver legal services in a price competitive market, or was it? Yeah, it, it was born of the, the changes in e-discovery that were happening. You know, there was a time when law firms could just bill like crazy in e-discovery. And associates were extremely profitable ones doing that. The clients pretty quickly recognized that something was wrong there. You know, we're using people with one skill set to do something that ideally requires another. And they began to go out to various outsourcers to get that business. So we recognized that there was migration of that work and felt the need to address it. And building an inside legal process organization, an organization to address those needs was our solution for it. We started slowly, but it worked. You know, clients loved it. And it was still thriving when I uh, when I left. I, I don't know what the state of it is now. but Right. And you then went and served as the futurist for ILTA, for the Legal Technology Group. What, what was that role? I, and, and from a boat. I did it from a boat. You did it from um, a boat. We'll talk about the boat here in a minute. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it's a little like my work at Brian Cave. It was without portfolio. They wanted me to think about the future and consult with people as programs were developed, as content was developed for the membership of ILTA. And that's what I'd been doing for years in other roles at ILTA, helping develop content, helping pull ILTA into the business of law from being solely about delivering fairly prosaic technology to to law firms. When I came into ILTA, that was a focus. And over time, we shifted that focus to include the business of law and knowledge management. So basically, I was continuing a role that I had had before, but with a different title. And I wasn't a futurist in the sense of predicting the future. I was more, and this is what I did at Brian Cave, trying to be a persuader or an evangelist for a new way of thinking about law. And and that's what I did at Delta. It was quite a bit of fun. And and they were very gracious to allow me to do it. It does sound like it was it was a lot of fun. One of the things that's pervasive in the industry now is various automation techniques, the most recent being chat GPT. Having spent your career experimenting and applying the evolution of technology, what advice would you give people in similar roles now in law firms as they're looking at some of these new technologies? coming on board? The question for people in roles like I had is, where are you going to use it? Where does it fit? You know, you don't want to just have it because it's cool. It has to do something that drops money to the bottom line or helps retain clients or helps increase lifetime client value. Those are the key performance indicators that you really want to influence. So where does it fit with that? And it doesn't fit in a conventional model. You know, inside law firms, we increase profits by raising prices, by multiplying hours, and by cutting overhead. That's been the formula since I started practice. And those those drums, yeah, those drums are still being beaten. Well, this stuff doesn't work there. It doesn't really fit. You know, if you're making things more efficient and the goal is to multiply hours, well, you're already at odds with that. And cutting overheads through technology, well, yes. But there's only so much you can do with that. And AI, maybe it fits in there, but the economic returns of that are not going to be great. 
where the returns start to fit are when you're using unconventional approaches to client relationships and the economics of practice. So you begin to share risk the way firms outside big law, Bartlett, Beck, Sussman, Godfrey, and so forth, do very well and very profitably. And when when you're assuming some of the risk, then it begins to make sense to find these tools that make producing work product and delivering advice radically more efficient. It makes sense to begin to create one-to-many solutions where one package of legal advice can be delivered to many clients. It can make sense to use technology as a foundation for deleveraging, not leveraging, deleveraging. And you know, the model for that, although I don't think they're they're strongly supported by technology, the model that's front page is Bishop Royals, highly deleveraged practice, but very successful. And technology will enable that too. So those unconventional practice models are where we would want to use these things. And how chat GPT or chat GPT-4, when it comes, you know, 500 times more data and orders of magnitude more power. I don't know exactly where they fit. It'd be fun to see. And you'd want to find some islands in the archipelago that don't want to experiment with that and that have the mindset to be experimental. Not a lot of lawyers at first blush have that mindset. They can be persuaded, but you you want to start with somebody who is already that way and entrepreneurial and willing to, to experiment. So that's, that's where these things fit. Yeah. And I mean, both of our experiences jointly are in, are in big law and big law firms, but do you have any views as to the role this emerging technology will have on access to justice issues, on the trying to close that gap between consumers and the legal system? Well, there's a huge amount of work taking place on that right now. And there are law schools that are aiming their curricula, law law school curricula at that. You know, I'm thinking of places like Suffolk uh, University in Boston and and other places like that. And, And there's a strong emphasis on one, the problem set of access to justice and the need to begin to automate. So will will that initiative come from big law? Probably not. But will it begin to help address the access to justice problem? Yeah, I'm certain of it. And I know good people who are working on that problem set right now. So yes, I'm, I'm very hopeful of that. And we're seeing, you know, tools to help deal with things as diverse as parking tickets and landlord-tenant issues come out that are, are using advanced automation if it's not AI. You know, AI gets tossed around quite a bit. But yes, not only is there a place for it in access to justice, I think it's indispensable. It has to be there. Yeah, I, I think that's right. The technology seems to be moving faster than the regulatory bodies of the profession are moving. And I wonder whether that comes into conflict at some point. Yes. I'm sure you know that the different jurisdictions are all over the place. Oh, they are indeed. (laughs) Yeah. Some bars are very progressive about embracing this sort of thing. And some are very, still very, very protective of the privilege of practicing law. And they don't want anything to, to threaten or diminish that privilege. So you know, this, this is another archipelago. We're going to have to pick islands in which to experiment with improving access to justice and then use those cases to expand to other islands. And there, there will be some jurisdictions that in the near term, medium term, might not be suited for it. They're not ready. 
and we just have to leave it at that, I think. No, I think I think you're right. Let me change to something completely different because I know your current passion is in conservation, particularly conservation of wild rivers, because you mentioned doing the futurist work from a boat, which I presume is your trawler. What gave you the passion for conservation of, of rivers and what challenges are you trying to meet? Well, I've been a water person all, all my life. My wife and I have lived on or very near the water during our entire 50-year marriage. So it was natural for us to migrate to the water much closer than we had been. We got the idea to go off exploring on a trawler, a 48-foot trawler. And we did that for several years. And in the course of that, we did a lot of inland travel, not, not just coastwise travel, but inland travel through glorious river systems. You know, we went all the way up the Tennessee River. We came down rivers like the Black Warrior and the Tom Bigby. And we went in Little Rivers, Alligator Rivers, Cape Fear River, all manner of rivers from highly trafficked like the St. John's River to very wild. And we often found ourselves anchoring in the wild part. So I began to notice the, you know, a lot of, a lot of my on-the-water experience was in freshwater. And I, I began to understand the great beauty and the fragility of saltwater and brackish water systems, estuaries. And I began to see the impact that humans were having on it. Along the glorious Tennessee, we find, you know, seven, I think it is, TVA dams, huge, huge affairs and nuclear power plants and all kinds of things. And the Tennessee is glorious. It's just it's a beautiful river, but it's no longer wild. So I began to see the need to preserve wild rivers. And when we chose a place to live, we chose to live on one, the Apalachicola River that runs from the Georgia border down to Apalachicola Bay is one of the least developed rivers in America and in North America, really, and is one of the most threatened. It's been called the most endangered river in North America, in part because upstream activities are threatening the supply of fresh water to the Apalachicola. You know, dams that are upstream of the Apalachicola source rivers are controlled by the Corps of Engineers, and they're taking a very restrictive approach to letting water move downstream. And, and that's killing off fragile ecosystems that support tupelo trees, cypress trees, that support fisheries like the oyster fishery in Apalachicola Bay. It's having huge impact, that approach to this river. So I've gotten passionate about that, and I spend a good deal of time on the Apalachicola River and trying to help it, trying to raise money for it. I'm very active in a stewardship organization called Apalachicola Riverkeeper. It's part of the Waterkeeper Alliance that tries to protect a number of waterways, watersheds around North America, around the world, really. What do the organizations do? Well, first, you know, I'll take ours as an example. We watch the river. We try to be out on it and see what's going on. And we watch the political environments around it, see what's proposed for development. And, and we advocate in various fora, in different forums, and even sue people when that's necessary. Riverkeeper, Apalachicola Riverkeeper, currently has a suit against the Corps of Engineers to try and force it to release more water downstream. And we have big education functions to try and teach people about wild rivers and where they fit in the richness of life and in the economy 
So we do lots of that stuff. And we work very close to the bone. You know, these are lean organizations. And it's one of the reasons I've been paying a lot of attention to fundraising. I did that last year quite a bit. I can imagine. What what experiences do you draw on from your time at Brian Kay, from your time with ILTA, from your time when you were running a transportation company that, that serves you well in this particular role? <laughs> well, in terms of raising money, my contact list really served us well because, because I touched those people. I reached out. And my time in business and at Brian Cave taught me to think like a business person, you know, to break down the components of what we're trying to do into discrete tasks that can be accomplished. And that's very much what I do in this area. You know, I broke down the process of raising money into how to reach people, what to say, how to maintain the connection, hopefully maintain interest and financial support over time. So that business way of thinking is the foremost advantage. My legal training, well, that's another way of thinking, too, and breaking down, you know, some of the issues that face these rivers. That kind of thinking like a lawyer helps as well. I'm not doing practice in this area. I'm really more of a business person now than a practicing lawyer. So it does help. It does help. Fair enough. Well, John, you've had a you've had a fascinating career. You've been at the forefront of a lot of things that people take for granted now. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And thank you for sharing your perspectives as we enter what could well be yet another phase of technology implementation in the, in the industry. And good luck on the riverfront. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. And I'm still watching law. I'll, I'll, I'll see what you guys do. I'll keep my eye on it. Keep us running straight down, between uh, hopping between island and island. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks, John. Yep. Happy to be here. So long. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.